You're listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a space for intellectual engagement, interdisciplinary collaboration, and a vibrant graduate community at James Madison University. Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. I'm Marina. I'm Becca. And today we're sitting down with Dr. Sophia Sumatar, professor of English here at JMU. Dr. Sumatar is an accomplished writer with four books and numerous short stories. In 2014, she won the William L. Crawford Award for Best Fantasy Debut, the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, the British Fantasy Award, and the World Fantasy Award for her book, A Stranger in Alondria, and she has also been nominated for Hugo and Nebula Awards for her short stories. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Samatar. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our first question is a little bit about where you've lived. Um, It sounds like you've traveled to multiple countries and lived in various places, but What brings you here to Harrisonburg, Virginia? Well, I came to Harrisonburg, Virginia um, for a job, first of all, which is my job here in the English department um, at JMU. But I also um, had a lot of connections here before I came. So my mother's family is Mennonite, and I went to Mennonite schools. I went to a Mennonite high school, Mennonite college. And here in Harrisonburg, there is um, Eastern Mennonite University, as well as James Madison. And some of my really close friends um, from high school and college actually teach there. So even though I only moved to Harrisonburg four years ago. I had visited here many times over the years um, to visit friends. So it was kind of a great, you know, meeting of a job opportunity and uh, a community that I already know. We know you have a ton of published short stories. Do you know how many you've published so far? That is a good question. I actually don't. No. I know it's more than 20 because there are 20 in my collection and like I selected for the collection and also the collection came out in 2017 and mm-hmm. I've written more stories since then. Yeah. So more than 20. That's what I can say. <laughs> so one in particular we've both read is your um, monster portraits, mm-hmm. uh, which you which is illustrated by your brother. Could you tell us what that process was like? Yeah, that was that was a super fun book to do. So I always knew that I wanted to do a book with Dell because he is actually the gifted one in the family, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, he's an amazing artist and he's always drawn pictures of monsters. So we started, I, w- I always thought if I can get my foot in the door and get something published, then I'm going to do a book with Dell. And so we actually started working on that book. I I believe it was, yeah, it was at the end of 2013, which is when my first novel was published. So we spent five years working on it. And the process was, so he um, does these wonderful ink drawings and he would draw the pictures of monsters and send them to me. And then I would kind of look at them and meditate on them and then write to them or write inspired by them. So we actually had an interesting back and forth with the publisher when the book was published because kind of the the default is to say Monster Portraits by Sophia Samatar, illustrated by Del, Del Samatar. But we were like, that's not actually how this worked because illustration suggests something that comes after. And in this case, the pictures came first. So if anything, the text is illustrating the pictures. So... 
in the end, we just went with, let's just put both our names on the cover, alphabetical order, and that's it. That's what we did. So the art came before the writing. I've been yeah. wondering that since I opened it for the first time. Um, and that book is beautiful. So if you have not read it, highly recommend it. What was the editorial process like? And you mentioned that even just listing your names on the cover was a little bit of maybe an issue, but... What is the process like when the pieces, a lot of them seem personal or are informed by personal stories, um, when sort of sharing back and forth with an editor who might suggest changes, how does that work for something like this? Yeah, um, we had a great experience with Rose Metal Press, wonderful editors who really, I mean, I think part of what needs to happen is, is actually before the editing process, which is you need to find that connection between artist and editor so that you know the book is with somebody who gets it and who kind of has an idea of what you're trying to do. And I've been fortunate in that that's been the case with me so far with every book. I mean, my first three were with Small Beer Press, um, Gavin Grant and Kelly Link, and Kelly's an amazing editor. And um, we, you know, we just work really well together. And it was the same thing um, with the editors at Rose Metal Press, where we chose that press because we knew that they do a lot of interesting stuff. They do innovative work. They they like hybrid work. They've done books that involve art. That was really important to us because this is, you know, the visual component is so strong. So we knew we needed somebody who could do an art book. But they also really understand hybrid genres, mixtures of poetry and essay and fiction, which is kind of what this book is. Um, so it was, it was, um, it was great working with them. They had good suggestions for us in terms of the order of the pieces, which, you know, I, we'd sort of played around with ordering the pieces in different ways and, and they were helpful in seeing like, can we have, um, sort of a little bit of an arc, you know, something that happens to this character or, you know, a feeling of the character because the character is a journalist interviewing monsters so it can feel very like it's just a thing and then another thing and then another thing and they helped us to figure out you know um how can it kind of build rather than just feeling like one thing after another and of course there were some times when you know like we didn't take all of their suggestions but that's if you have a good editor and a good relationship, that's also not a problem. You're like, no, I don't want to change it. And they're like, okay. So would it be rude to the monsters to ask if you have a favorite one? Um, I don't think they'd care. <laughs> <laughs> um, a favorite one out of that book in particular? I mean, if yeah. you have another Ooh. one, that's fine. If it's not um, in the book, that's more exciting, maybe. I mean, I have... So in let's start with in the book. In the book... Um, one of the pieces that I really loved is called The Clan of the Claw. And there's a monster in there who is this sort of, um, I guess what that monster proposes is that you can take all kinds of characters, figures, people, creatures who have been marginalized for one reason or another and you can you can consider them as all of them belonging to the same clan or the same tribe or family um and i just really like that concept 
And so I like that monster for her invitation to say, you know, you don't have to, because what can happen when you talk about people who are marginalized for various different reasons is that you can wind up with these tiny, tiny, tiny categories of people. And it's good to recognize, you know, the specificity of each person's situation. But the downside is that you can wind up with people who are very isolated or who are you know, who don't have options to describe themselves other than, you know, I'm this, like, I mean, for myself, for example, you know, I'm like half Somali and half Swiss German Mennonite. So, I mean, there's like six of us in the world. So, so that's really tiny and it starts to be a little bit like, that's kind of not enough to really, you know, make a community. So you have to think bigger than that. And, and that's what this monster invites us to do is to say, well, you could also be, you could be in the same tribe as various people who are kind of on the fringe for a variety of different reasons. Do you have a favorite monster outside of the book? Is a favorite monster outside of the book? I mean, I have a probably my favorite um, one that I really, really love is, is Caliban from Shakespeare's The Tempest. Mm-hmm. I love Caliban. And I think that Caliban, I think that Caliban has actually quite a large tribe. I mean, in the play, he's kind of alone, like he had his mom and then that's it. And he's like the only one on the island. But I think that he is... Um, I would put him together with a variety of kind of troll characters from folklore. I would put him with Tolkien's orcs. I think he would get along with them really well. Um, and, and what these uh, monsters share is that they're big, they're dark, and their land was stolen. Mm. And so that's a category of monster that, that I'm very interested in. Hmm. Big, dark, and dispossessed. Oh, I like that. <laughs> so Del's a tattoo artist, right? Correct. How does he feel about tattooing his monsters? Oh, he um, loves it. He loves, I mean, he does all kinds of stuff for people. I don't know if he's done any of the actual monsters from the book, although mm-hmm. people have come to him because they saw the book and they have gone up to Jersey City like, I read this book and I want you to give me a tattoo, which is oh, pretty cool. Amazing. But yeah. look at his Instagram. It's Dell's illustration yeah. and um, has some fantastic images on there of the stuff that he does. You've published a lot, um, mostly short stories, but some longer length books. We were wondering if you have a character in particular from any of your work that you feel like you have a personal connection to because they are fiction but it's not always completely separate yeah it's definitely not separate i mean to the extent that i have a personal connection with every single character in all the things that i've written i mean if i don't have that then i don't think that that a story happens it wouldn't happen for me and i would go as far as to suggest that it wouldn't happen for anyone because writing takes um persistence and you know you have an inspiration but then when you are actually producing the thing you have to remain inspired over a length of time and i just don't see how that happens if you don't have a personal connection to what you're writing about i think you would lose you would lose energy for it. And I have lost energy for things. And there have been things that I've written that I'm like, eh, drop it after a while because, you know, maybe for a variety of reasons, but often, you know, partly because that connection is not 
strong enough. I think a story has to grip you, the writer. So you have to be gripped by it and you write it until you get free of it. And that the the energy of that relationship between the writer and the work, I would describe that as a personal connection. And I've talked about this with other writers as well who feel the same way, that basically you're kind of stuck with the thing <laughs> until it lets you go. And that's often why we actually finish things. Because sometimes, especially if you, and I mean, my first novel was 13 years from like starting writing it until it was published. I just lied. It was longer. <laughs> because wait, I started writing it in 99 and it was published in 2013. So there you go. It was, it was a long time. And you're not, and I often wanted to just drop it and forget about it because I couldn't find a publisher and I couldn't find an agent and like it was so difficult, but it was a case of the book not letting go of me. So I had to stick with it until I found a good home for it. You talked about your process for monster portraits. What is your larger overall writing process? Some people will um, recommend that one write every day. Um, I think that's really good advice. But for me, it only works if we really broaden the definition of writing. So when I'm writing something, I spend time with it every day. Now, that may not be very much time. Often it's an hour is all I have, um, maybe two hours. And so during that time, I am not, you know, I'm, I don't like sit down and just start working, but I might be reading over what I've written. I might, you know, one day it might be like, I moved a comma. Like that's what I did that day, but I was close to it. I might be, some of the things that I write involve research. So I might be reading for it. I might be taking notes for it. And that to me is being with that work. It's in my head. I'm in touch with it. And I think that's the most important thing for me is to maintain that connection. And then as for actually writing stuff down, it takes as long as it takes. I always write longhand. I don't type my work into a computer the first go around. So I also might be typing it in. That's part of, you know, the process. And that's always a first kind of a first light revision for me, because as I'm typing it, I'll be, you know, change things or not like the sound of something. Um, yeah. And you do that until it lets go of you and then you're done. You teach at JMU mm -hmm. and you write and you read to write and to teach. Do you take breaks from personal writing? while you're teaching during the school year or while you're working on something else? Or is there something, is there a process that changes dependent on your schedule? Like if you teach more one mm -hmm. semester and you teach less one semester, do you write more then and write less then? Or do you spend time with it just as it comes to you, regardless of all your other commitments? It definitely changes, but I would say the the process, the fundamental process doesn't change, but just the amount of time that I have to spend changes a lot. Mm -hmm. So I do tend to get far fewer words on paper during the semester, just because often, you know, I have that short amount of time, I'm reading, I'm looking, I'm getting back into the thing, you know, then it's like two sentences I write maybe, and it's like, oh, I have to go to work. 
so I, you know, in the summer, a lot more happens um, usually. And then, of course, there's always travel and family vacations. And then that messes everything up. So, you know, it varies. There's definitely um, an ebb and flow to it. But the process is the same. And the process is always ongoing. I don't, I don't stop. I don't, because then I'm very unhappy. I just am really not happy if I'm not working on something for myself. And I have had in the past, I had one job where it was impossible for me to work on any of my personal projects while I was doing that job. And that was just like, well, that's not going to work. Vacation time is not enough for me. This is not a hobby. This is my work. This is what I do and it's who I am. And so I have to kind of, I had to change something. I had to not do that job anymore because that just isn't, it's not going to work for me. You teach graduate courses. So what kind of graduate courses do you teach and what kind of students do you work with there? I adore our English MA program. It's so good. It's so good. I love working (laughs) in it. I love um, the students are just, you know, it's a small group and they're lively and they're so interested and they just, and they're so smart. It's really, really good. Um, So I have done two graduate courses so far. I would teach one every year if I could, but of course all the professors are like, I want to teach the grad class. So, you know, so, so we have to share. So um, I get to teach one every other year, which I feel very lucky for. So I'm teaching right now a seminar in affect theory. So I, and that's something that I'm enjoying a lot. So I like theory. I like, um, which turns a lot, a a lot of people don't like it. It turns them off because it, you know, they're like, oh, it's all full of jargon and it's, you know, it's too abstract. And it's, but for me, I always feel like when I read theory, I'm reading people who, who have had to press language a little bit in order to make it say what they want to say. And they're trying to express ideas that are new and different and surprising. And sometimes that forces them to, you know, make up new terms or, and, you know, as a fantasy writer, you're really not bothered by people like making up words. You're like, yeah, that could be a word. Why not? Like, I'll use that. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a fantastical um, quality to theory that I enjoy and there's a playful quality to it that I enjoy. So yeah, I'm doing this affect theory course now. It's all about feelings and emotions and collective emotion and contagious feelings. And it's very interesting and I love it. The other one that I did a couple years ago was called, what did I call that class? I called it Waste Time, Bodily Matters and Afrofuturity. So it was about, it was kind of Afrofuturism. It was kind of Black humanisms and post-humanisms. It was kind of the body and waste and matter. And it was also very interesting. And it's always, I mean, both of the classes are are challenging. The material is really challenging to the students, to me. I mean, I'm picking this material because I want to read it with other people and I want the chance to kind of really dive into it. Um, So that's one of the things I love about the graduate program is that these students are basically, you know, they're, they're like, we're colleagues. I mean, we can publish in the same places. We can present at the same conferences. And that means that that's a group where I can have kind of a study group that is for me as much as as it is for them. So when you're pulling readings for it, are you pulling more from 
things that you've already read or things that you want to read? I'm pulling from things that I've read and I want to read again. Because okay. I'm like, uh, this was so interesting. but And also things that I want to read together. So sometimes it'll be, okay, I read, you know, these five different things scattered over time, but I feel like there's threads between them. What if I put them all together in the same class and we would read them together and then see what kind of sparks between between those works? Is there a subject that you're planning on or excited about teaching in the future, since it sounds like you maybe switch gears every time you teach a grad course? Yeah, I I mean, I'm liking the affect theory class so much, and there's so much more that I would like to read for that, that I might teach that one again. But then another course that I would love to teach sometime at the graduate level is Algeria. Like, it might even just be called Algeria. I don't know. But what I'm interested in is, like, Algeria and theory, right? I mean, you have Jacques Derrida, Hélène Sissou, Albert Camus, born in colonial Algeria. Like, they're Algerians. And then you have Franz Fanon, Martinique, but he goes to Algeria and he makes his home in Algeria. So, like, all of these incredible philosophers somehow either they were in Algeria and they left or they weren't from Algeria and they went there. There's this interesting nexus of Algeria and theory that I'm very interested in. Plus, there are, I would want to teach Asiya Jabbar, who's an Algerian writer that I really, really love. Um, and I'd also want to look at the work of the artist. Um, what is her name? Her last name is Minya, Amina Minya. She came to JMU either last year or the year before. Um, and she's an Algerian artist and does really interesting work with memory. She's very conceptual. She's very theoretical in her work. So I would like to put all of that stuff together and be like, hey, what's going on with Algeria and theory? I could call it like Altheria. <laughs> you should like take fun. a class on a trip to Algeria. That should be That would be a amazing. study abroad. <laughs> That would be amazing. Who's the coolest person you've ever gotten to have a conversation with? Ooh. Doesn't have to be in the genre. It can just be from your life, but... It's actually my brother. He's really, really an amazing person, and he's very cool. Yeah. Others would include... I mean, I would would also mention um, Kelly Link, who is my editor and friend and just a fantastic writer. I mean, I love her work. That's why I went to that press in the first place with my own work was because I loved Kelly's work so much. And she is, she's quirky. She knows about so many different things. Very cool to talk to. I wish we had your brother here with us. That would be awesome. That would be fun. And he knows about a lot of stuff that I don't know about. He knows a lot of things about music, which I'm always so behind and out of it with music because I don't, I only listen to it in the car and I almost never drive. So there you go. Mm -hmm. It's just like not a lot of music for me. I get my music from my children because I have two teenagers and they're like, here's what we need to listen to in the car. I'm like, okay. (laughs) What's the last song you've listened to? What's the most recent song? It was Something by Brockhampton, who I like, and my daughter is a big fan. And so, yeah. Yeah. At least your tastes are similar. Yeah. Solid choice. But I'm also, I'm very open. I'm 
you know, I will listen to just about anything. Mm-hmm. So that's also not, I mean, are our tastes similar? I don't know. I could have a completely different child and they'd bring me another thing and I'd be like, that's cool. Let's hear that again. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just not, um, yeah, I, that's, that's an area where after we wrote Monster Portraits, somebody, I forget who wrote to me and was like, can you give us a playlist for your book which is a great Mm. idea right like what's Mm -hmm. the playlist and i was like i have no idea ask my brother (laughs) i was gonna say he sounds like he would know yeah sounds like he would have ideas maybe he listened to things while he was drawing the monsters he listens that's the thing his work goes with music Mm. like he listens he's got music on in the shop he's got music on when he is drawing that's always been a great connection for him and i know that some people listen to music while they're reading and writing my problem is if i put music on and i'm reading or writing i don't hear it so i'm like what's the like that was a waste of music i don't hear anything nothing is getting into my head mm-hmm. so i might as well not play it what are you reading right now Oh, what am I reading? I am reading an amazing book. It is called Cloud and Ashes, and it is by Greer Gilman, who is a genius. She is a fantasy writer. So the first novel she wrote was called Moonwise, which I read a few months ago because I was like, I want to reread the Greer Gilman. This is not the first time I've read these books. So I reread Moonwise, and then now I'm reading Cloud and Ashes. And she is just a wizard with language. I mean, she uses a lot of folklore and writes a lot about nature and the cosmos and the seasons and this mysterious world called Cloud, which possibly is made up by these two young women, but then they actually go there. Is it real? Did they make it up? Did they just discover it? Was it already there? Anyway, she's amazing. So I'm reading that. And I'm reading also um, Derrida's Specters of Marx because it came up in the affect theory class. And I was like, I haven't read that. I'm going to go read it. So I'm reading that as well. So you're a prolific short story writer. Are there, do you have any like favorite short story venues? I love, well, I love Strange Horizons. Shameless plug. <laughs> Um, I, they were very, they were great for me. I had an early, um, story that I, that I placed there. Selkie stories are for losers. Um, and yeah, they're wonderful. I really love Uncanny as well. Um, I like Lightspeed a lot. Those are our all favorite venues. And I also love, and this is kind of a newer one for me, but Conjunctions, which is out of Bard College and is, they publish twice a year a big, beautiful volume of fiction, nonfiction, poetry. And what I like about them is that they publish a really wide variety of people. So they, they do publish, um, fantasy and science fiction writers they also have a lot of writers that are not in the genre so i really like and it's kind of rare to find something that that includes those different genres is really high quality and and really kind of beautifully put together so i like them a lot i published a story with them in their in their fall issue and i have another one that will be in the spring issue the theme for the spring issue is monsters so the collection is called the the issue is called Grendel's Kin. Mm. Grendel is another one of those monsters I love, completely like related to Caliban. They're definitely 
you know, cousins. I'm really looking forward to the new translation by Maria Devana Headley. Me too. That's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. yeah. Maria's great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you listeners for joining us for this episode of Conversations at the Cohen Center. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at JMU Cohen Center. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at cohencenter at jmu.edu. Our intro and outro music come from Phase 3 by Zylo Zico. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org.